You are listening to the Hoops Fix podcast, the official voice of the UK's largest basketball website. Visit hoopsfix.com for exclusive news, videos and more. Welcome to another episode of the Hoops Fix podcast with me, your host, Sam Nita, full-time British basketball advocate. And on this week's show, we've got none other than Jason Swain, an all-time great shooter, a multi-year pro, multi-title winner. Uh, he's done it all and been around a very long time. One of the things I like about him the most is that he's actually still playing. Uh, it's clear and it comes across in this just how much he loves the game. Uh, even though he might not be a professional anymore, he hasn't hung them up. He's still playing as and where he can um, and the passion really comes through. He's a great storyteller. Um, there were some awesome stories in this that he shared of his time, both in the BBL, uh, in the National League, uh, and with the national team. And it proved to be, yeah, a really enjoyable conversation. Uh, we haven't caught up in a while, so yeah, it was wicked to kind of get into it with him. And I think uh, you'll really enjoy the conversation. As always, uh, before we get into the show, please take two seconds to check out our Patreon account, patreon.com forward slash hoopsfix, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash H-O-O-P-S-F-I-X. There, uh, you can sign up to give us a monthly or annual contribution of as much or as little as you would like uh, for the price of a cup of coffee, for the price of a sandwich. Every single month, uh, you can support the work that we're trying to do in growing British basketball um, and making it more visible uh, and increasing the knowledge around around the sport so if you value it uh please consider it check it out patreon.com forward slash hoops fix as always if you're watching on youtube uh leave a comment below let me know what you think uh you can reach out to me on every single social media platform at hoops fix if you want some private one-on-one interaction drop me an email sam at hoopsfix.com. anyway that is enough from me here is this week's show with jason swain jason welcome to the show hi sam how are you doing I'm doing good. It's good to uh, it's good to catch up. I've been wanting to have this kind of career retrospective uh, with you for for a little while. But before we get into all of that stuff, um, you know, today is obviously the last day of, of the BBL season. Uh, you know, you've had a chance to be courtside and see a lot this year. Um, maybe compared to previous years, I'll be interested to kind of hear your take on uh, the BBL this season, uh, how you think the league is doing. Um, as someone who obviously played for a number of years, what? Two two and a half decades ago, um, ish. So uh, it'd be interesting to kind of yeah hear your take on sort of how how things have been, where they've come to, um, and kind of the state of the league, uh, where you think it's at, at the moment. Yeah. So first of all, you know, playing in two thousand, the year 2000, 2001 was my kind of last BBL year, um, and playing in arenas, playing at Manchester, Sheffield. You know, it was a great time to play. Um, and then it kind of tailed off a bit, but I actually was before I even got in into the commentary stuff. I was I was really interested. It really started to to grab my interest again this season. There's a lot of really top players in the league, a lot of exciting guys that you would probably pay to watch again, you know. Um, and it seemed to be getting gathering momentum, and it's just a shame for the fans because of COVID and whatnot, but. I think sitting courtside, I've been fortunate enough to experience a really, a really good product this year. You know, the teams that I've watched, um, different styles, the riders that have obviously won the league. Um, you know, being at Manchester, one of my old clubs that I really want to do well, um, and then Newcastle. You know, are always there and thereabouts, and then the Lions have been great, and Plymouth at the end. So 
it, 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 it's been a great game to watch. Um, you know, most games that I've been courtside, I've really found interesting, especially as the season's gone along. There's been a few games with the COVID stuff that players have not been available, you know, um, coaches have been missing at different times. But overall, you know, it's, it's, it's exciting. And there's some players that I would, I'm actually thinking, I'd like to see him play. I'd like to see them play. So, so yeah, it's been exciting, Sam, really. I feel like COVID's been a, a bit of a double-edged sword in the sense that, yeah, of course, it's, 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 uh, it has negatively affected the league from a monetary standpoint and, and everything else. But, but also the fact that all of a sudden, um, a lot of people have been sitting around at home where in previous years they would be out and about on, on, on the weekend when games are played. Uh, and there's been wider access to streams. And obviously there's sort of a growing um, group of internet creators that are sort of covering the league it's definitely felt like it's that sort of helped. Uh, well, the league being more competitive this season than it has been in, in previous years has helped, obviously, in terms of the products on the floor, but then also just the, the coverage uh, and the access to uh, being able to watch it, access it, uh, compared to previous years. Obviously, the Sky coverage makes a massive difference. Um, but yeah, so is, is it will be interesting to see what happens when the doors do open and, and fans start coming back again and whether or not that continues and obviously people start going out. Uh because yeah, it, it obviously it remains to be unseen. But yeah, it's it's been. Were you? I was interested to know. Did you follow the league uh, in detail, kind of in the last few years, or is it really this season that you've kind of got more no, into I, it? To be honest, I didn't. Um, and you know, I think it's with the Giants. You started to change. Uh, you know, owner Jamie Edwards, who I played with. You know, and it started to get me a little bit more interested. And and uh, no, I haven't. One of my main passions now, believe it or not, Sam, is netball uh, with my daughter. So. So one of the, one of my main passions is uh, is netball with with my uh, with my daughter. So so that that really has been something that I've really got into over the years, and and I've kind of put basketball to one side. You know, my son is not around anymore; he's in America. So so it's um, I, but this year I've really been interested in it, and I think you're right. People like yourselves. I mean, there's no one better to to promote the sport. Hoops Fix has kept kept it going, and we've been able to watch things on Instagram. We've been able to watch things on Twitter. You know, different things like that. So that I agree with you. That's been good in a lot of respects. You brought you brought up Neville there. Neville was like it's fascinating for me because it, it it's a governing body that really has uh, their stuff in order, so to speak. And any time, funny enough, actually, last week I was watching. Um, I'm not a big netball fan, but I was I was watching a BBL game on YouTube on Sky Sports. I think afterwards, when the game finished, it was just still up on my screen. And you know, like it, on YouTube, it auto plays to the next thing that's like your next related video or whatever. And it was a netball Super League game. Yeah. And it was at the, it was at the Copper Box, and uh, just and it was during it's obviously it was it was broadcast recently. It was during the lockdown and stuff. So. But the level of game day presentation, they had LED boards that the tip that the benches were sitting behind. Um, you know, obviously the floor all branded up. Like the, just everything about it, the feel of it, it was just super impressive. And they've been like that for years, kind of ahead of where the BBL has been. And obviously the level of funding and, and uh, sponsorship they've been able to raise has been has been incredible. So yeah, it's a, it's a super interesting sport where, you know, when you consider they have or they appeal to fifty uh, percent of well, if you're saying the population is roughly fifty percent male, fifty percent female, you know, it's yeah. only accessible to fifty percent of the population. Their numbers in comparison to basketball are just ridiculous, um, and it does make you think basketball could be doing a lot better uh, from that perspective. Like, obviously, your daughter's quite a high-level netball player. Well, she plays at, plays at the moment for Leeds Rhinos and uh, Leeds Athletic, and she's in the under-19s, and she's she's a promising talent, but 
so is so many other kids at that age. So yeah. you know, um, and she she plays for that franchise and she enjoys it and uh, she works she works ex- exceptionally hard, Sam. Um, yeah. So we'll see where that takes her. Uh, yeah. But yeah, Elias has you know become kind of the main sporting interest in in our family, which is it's great because. I, I go to netball and I literally have no politics within it. You know, I don't know anyone, so so I turn up and I, and I enjoy the game. I'm starting to do a bit of coaching with elite netball, so uh, a lady called Anna Carter who's doing that development stuff. I'm starting to work with them quite a bit. And coming from a basketball perspective, my netball is limited, but you know, I'm learning as I go along. So it, it's really it's exciting for me. Um, do you find it's hard for you to? enjoy basketball in the same way as a spectator or as a fan because you're kind of always got the basketball mind switched on of looking at how the game's being played and what's being ran and stuff like that like is or or do you find actually it's very easy for you to kind of switch between fan player coach whatever well now i'm at a point where i really really enjoy watching the game i enjoy watching it in england i played at bradford for a a few years and and i guess i guess now my son is not here it helps a lot because i'm not thinking oh well how's he how's he doing you know how's he playing i i can just go and objectively watch a game um and i enjoy i'm actually enjoy i enjoy both sam i'm still very passionate about basketball um i hope that didn't come across like i'm not because i am Uh, but um, i've just got two sports i really enjoy watching now and and yeah so i do enjoy going to the games and just just you know zoning out and enjoying the game really all right so let's let's wind it back uh, to the beginning um Starting with always uh, kind of what made you first pick up a basketball and how, how you first sort of ended up, yeah, like playing the game. Yeah, so it was quite funny, really. I mean, I'm I'm from Halifax, uh, which I don't know. You probably probably a lot of people watching this would be like, "Where's Halifax?" So so anyway, yeah, I'm 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 a Yorkshireman and uh, I've always played football. So I was fortunate enough to play once or twice for Huddersfield Town Boys, and you know I was a footballer until probably 15 years old, and I was walking through my uh, local leisure centre, Northbridge Leisure Centre in Halifax, and uh, and we had some family over from Luxembourg, and there was nothing going on that evening, and they said, why don't we go watch a basketball game? And I was like, well, I don't really want to do that. I want to play football with my friends. And my dad was like, well, you know, come come along with us. And I said, well, I'm, I'm playing football, but it absolutely rained cats and dogs that night. So... I was like, I just go to the basketball, and I was on the edge of my seat. I, I watched Cat uh, Johnson play. Um, uh, I watched Curtis Xavier play. Uh, Norman Findlay, Dave Harris, and and I was like, this sport is unreal. And I, I was just transfixed after that. And fortunately, the local leisure centre they put on uh, summer activities that you could go to. So at age fifteen. I started attending these uh, activities with a lot of other youngsters and just got into playing basketball uh, and just literally didn't get out of the gym after that. So that was how I started playing. Do you, did you uh, did you transition away from football like and did it become all about basketball or did, were you kind of doing both and seeing how things went? Yeah, so my first year of playing, I was yeah, I probably I probably started watching at fourteen, but at fifteen years old. My first year of playing, I played both. I played football and basketball. And, and as you know, with many young kids that look into different sports, there comes an age where if you want to be good at one of them, you can't do 
both. So I was playing football and it helped my football because it helped my quickness a little bit. Um, and I was able to suddenly play better on a football pitch. Um, and then, But then I had to make a choice and I, I kind of developed rapidly in that first year. Fortunate enough play, to play for uh, Curtis Xavier, uh, who's probably responsible for 80% of my success, if I'm being honest. Um, and fortunate enough to play for him and develop drastically and be in the gym all the time. And I just thought, you know, I could actually be okay at this sport. So so I just um, I just said, football, I can't do that anymore. Uh, and concentrating on basketball. I feel, I feel like Curtis Xavier is... Um drastically underrated uh, or underappreciated. I think, you know, he's come up a few times, both on the podcast and in, in conversations, uh, private conversations with people, um, as someone who's had, yeah, a massive impact on, on the sport in that area. Like, what was it like for you playing uh, under him? Like, w- when you look back now, like, what do you think are the key things uh, that you learned from him? The key things, I mean, this is probably, probably goes with every single coach that's that's been been good for anybody uh, and and players that speak about coaches fondly it's not just basketball it's about life it's about habits it's about you know becoming a man so at age 15 I never played junior basketball I never played for under 17s under 19s I just didn't do it so I played in division three which is now division two because it was one two and three so so yeah I played what is division two basketball now from being 15 um had to sit on the bench, but Curtis Xavier is is somebody that's you know taught me things that I I thought I couldn't do, you know, um, pushed me to limits. I mean, at times you know excruciating limits that I I I just thought I you know what what am I doing this for? And you know, as you keep going along and you're going along, and a lot of a lot of nights where you know I, I hated him and things like that, but. But he also taught me about life and he also believed in me and loved me to an extent at that age. And I just think technically as a coach, I never had any bad habits uh, from him. So I didn't play in the park. I didn't, when I caught the ball, I didn't dribble it first before squaring up. You know, little things that to play on a successful team, you know, Sam, you know, if you someone gets the ball and then they're dribbling it and somebody's cut and, well, you can't pass it now because... And they're all bad habits that you pick up from just learning the game with your friends. I didn't have any of those. So I, I learned the game from scratch, you know, and, and I learned good habits and, and good ways to work and good practice ethics and, and things like that. So, you know, I can't speak highly enough of Curtis Xavier. And I think in terms of you saying he's underappreciated, I'm not sure he is, but I also don't think if it was the NBA or it was somewhere else, there'd be a role for player development for Curtis Xavier. Whereas in the English game, is there that role for him? And I think that's the way I look at it. You know, he's definitely not underrated for myself and many other players that have worked with him. But just does he fit? Does he fit in? Do, do clubs fit him in a lot of respects? Mm. Yeah, that's, I, I, that is something that I feel like a lot of people have been again been talking about more recently. Is it's kind of when you finish playing. Where are the roles for the ex-players? You know, what yeah. is the pathway for a career after basketball? Because we don't have that basketball economy like in America or other country, European countries where there, the, the, there is a lot of money in the sport to be able to employ a lot of people professionally. Um, yeah. Those opportunities just don't exist in the same way. And, you know, hopefully over time that, that will change. But uh, like, and even you see it with, with, um, 
with the Sky Sports deal this this year, all of a sudden you've got uh, you know Kieran uh, doing uh, sideline reporting um, and other guys, Anthony Rowe and, and guys being able to sort of jump on uh, and help out, which is obviously paid gigs, which puts them in front of people and kind of helps you know helps their career in the long run. And we need more of that. But yeah, obviously it t- it takes a long time. Um, so when when you were 15, 16, were you looking at it like uh, were you trying to pursue a career in it? Did you see a future playing basketball? I saw a future playing the game, and and you know I was playing with adults that were were good players then, you know, and I saw a future in. I believe that my work ethic and the coach that I had would get me to be a lot better as a basketball player. Did I see myself at that point playing for England and you know playing for my job? Um, probably not uh, until I was about. 17 years old and then then it started becoming like well you know I could actually be be quite good at this but but this is again the foresight of Curtis was that he knew what I could be good at and he concentrated on just that so as you know in my early playing days I wasn't a superstar I played with great guys like Steve Bucknell and Amici that were Roger Huggins that were far far better than I am let's not get it uh, confused they were Tony Dorsey, they were great players. But I was able to do one thing better than everybody else, and that's shoot the ball. And I also played harder than most people. So there was, and he knew that, did Curtis. So me being 15 years old, he saw that. He saw me at 25. With how many coaches do that? You know, or how many coaches think, well, for me to win, I need to be able to do this. But he concentrated solely on me as a player and said, you know, this kid has the great attitude and he valued that. And at the end of the day, I was just, a, I was basically just a chubby kid from Halifax and it shouldn't have happened, Sam. So we shouldn't be sat here talking about this, you know, uh, and that's kind of what I remember him most fondly for, really, if I'm being honest. When we talk about um, great shooters, uh, which obviously you were, you were, I one still play a little bit, um, you know, in interviews with them, the talk is always of just getting reps up, you know, just practicing, 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 you know, getting that muscle memory uh, and just getting shots up. Like when you talk about the hours that you were putting in, you know, your work ethic um, at that age, what were you doing? Like whether it's, you know, in a, in practice, outside of practice, like kind of what was your uh, sort of workout regime uh, looking like? How did you become a great shooter? So, um it kind of changed for me a lot. Um, I would say I, w- I would say I always got in the gym and shot the ball. I always valued through Curtis's you know things at the beginning, my mum and dad's encouragement. Really, I would always get in the gym. I would always find a court and I would always shoot 200, 300, 400 at a time. And I would have and in the days of before the gun, and you know, uh, and I'd have to get my own rebound. So. So this took a lot of time and I would always spend a lot of time. But my real change was after my first year at Sheffield, I would say, Sam. So 20 years old, probably. Um, I was, that first year we won the the league. Um, I'll make no bones about it. I I was a bench guy. I had a lot of DMPs. I was a young guy. Uh, I was a practice guy. I played probably average four minutes a game. You know, I was one of the guys that was just getting better at that point. But I was frustrated because I was not given a chance by the coach. You know, he's not giving me a chance. And I had that mindset. And 
and it was Curtis actually that called me and said, you're not doing this, you're not doing that. Um, and he basically said, you know, no one cares. You have to work harder. You have to work more focused. So I changed my level of time. A lot of guys spend a lot of time shooting, but I changed that into, <coughs> excuse me, quality time. So 30, 40 minutes of just hard work, really, and just focus. And that's what changed it for me. Was it, do you feel like that was the point that you actually became a good shooter? Like, were you a good shooter as a junior, like, you know, in your younger years coming through? Or, or do you feel like it was actually not until after your rookie year that, that like, it, it, it changed and you sort of become recognised as, yeah, you know, this guy can shoot? Yeah, so I, I always had a good touch for the ball and, and I always kind of had a quick release and understood understood spacing and understood games and things like that. But I think, you know, I, I remember back to Manchester, you, um, you know, me and Ronnie Baker would literally be, you know, 400, 500 shots before and after practice every day. Um, and yeah, I think, I think shooting the ball as a skill becomes like an OCD trait, Sam. I think, you know, it, it involves sight lines. It's a specialist area, isn't it? You know, that, can't be influenced by anything else and you can zone out and say right if I can do this at a certain speed and I can knock this down and I can challenge myself and shoot when I'm tired and and you know if I'm not scared of the big moment and and I'm I'm willing to you know lay it all out on the line things like that I mean you look at what Steph Curry does now is still unbelievable to watch even even though we see it every week and guys like Ray Allen and Reggie Miller I mean how focused they were, not just on the court, but before they got there, organising their equipment, things like that. And I think there's a lot goes into shooting, and I think a lot of it is a mental, a mental skill as well. Who, who were the players that you were looking up to when you were when you were young coming through? Um, are we talking England or are we talking just in both? Both. Like when you talk about kind of who your inspirations were, like whether it was English or, or abroad or both. I mean, in general, my inspirations have been my parents. But if we're looking on the basketball court, you know, I, I fell in love, like I said, with basketball through Cat Johnson. Um, I always liked uh, a guy, uh, Mike Landell at Leicester. This is a lot. He played with Carl Brown at Leicester. I always liked his game. I always watched him um, in the UK. I, I enjoyed I enjoyed watching, watching the shoes. Like Matt Hubbard was a great shooter. Um, and and I guess in the NBA, the two guys, Chris Mullin was my favourite player growing up for the Warriors. Uh, he was my favourite player, and then John Starks for the Knicks. I'm a Knicks fan, uh, and at last we win in this year. So, so at last, I mean, we've sucked for so long, Sam. Uh, but yeah, John Starks because he brought that. He just brought that fearless energy, and I and I kind of, I kind of identified with shooting the ball and just not giving a damn about who you're playing against. I, I like that in him. So, yeah, those were my, my guys in the NBA, the Mullin and Starks, definitely. What was access like to the NBA in the early 90s, uh, being in England? So I was fortunate, <laughs> this is years ago, and I was fortunate enough to, I was hanging around with a girl at the time who had screen sport. And it's probably, probably the only reason, I, you know. <laughs> uh, so she had screen sport. So there was a live game on on a Friday uh, and then there was a NBA action on was on at six thirty. So, you know, there there was 
there was access, but it was limited. I mean, we can see it every day. Every time we switch our phone on, it's there, isn't it? Now, yeah. Um, but yeah, it was limited. But I did, I did manage to to get it as as much as as much as I could. But it was staying up till all hours, recording it on your your video back then. And uh, but yeah, if it was there, I watched it. So just rewinding quickly, you know, we've already got to your first couple of years in the pros, but why did you make the switch from Calderdale to Doncaster? Oh, so, um, so Curtis left and, and went to coach Doncaster. Uh, okay, so you did stay with him the entire time? Yeah, the club folded and I wasn't sure when whether I was going to make that team at Doncaster. We had uh, Tony Holly at the time was our main guy. Uh, we had... Uh, Wendell Francis, who came from Oldham, you know, there was the Americans team. Kevin Penny, who was uh, another great guy at Manchester. So, so we had guys like that. And this was Division One, right? Yeah, this was Division One. Um, so, what is Division One now? And uh, and yeah, we had we had a very good basketball team, and and I went along hoping to just make the team. Uh, ended up starting all year, and, and we won the league and the cup. So. That's how I ended up going. I just said to Curtis, "Can I come and try out?" And he said, "Yeah, it's going to be a long shot, but you know, give it your all and let's see." What was the level of competition like in Division One back then? Yeah, it was good. We had um, Coventry were a good team. The the Donaldson brothers, if you can remember, Dick Donaldson, his son plays now um, over. I don't know if he's still playing over here. Was uh, he the one you played in Reading? Yeah, he did. Yeah, uh, I don't yeah. think he played last year, but um, but yeah. Uh, they had a good team. Uh, Crystal Palace, Russ Saunders was at Crystal Palace, and Ronaldo Lawrence, whose son is now at Plymouth, uh, was on that team. Um, and and yeah, it was just a, it was just a good time. A lot of teams were down. I, I guess there were like four or five really strong teams in that league. Um, mm. and, and at that time, it, I mean, it's kind of a different game now, Sam, isn't it? So it's always hard to compare. Yeah. Was it was it still sort of semi pro? Like you had some American professionals or whatever and and some guys that were still, you know, working and doing and trying to balance the two. Yeah, so me at Doncaster at that point, I was uh, one of the younger guys who was actually on a, a kind of YTS kind of thing like they used to do in football. So I would spend my time um learning about the leisure centre and things like that and I would go and, and be like a a kind of young professional on the books and get paid a, a little bit of money for doing that. Uh, but then the Americans would come over and they would, we had two Americans at the time, like I said, Tony Ollie and Wendell Francis, and they came over and they were our paid players. So, and the other English guys who also got a little bit of money as well. So you can, you can probably say, yeah, semi-professional, I would say. Yeah. See, so you were a junior playing in amongst the seniors. Uh, who were the other guys that were kind of your generation um, that either you knew of, uh, that sort of you saw as talented? I mean, were a lot of them actually playing in senior competition? So you didn't see them a lot as opposed to if you'd played, you know, under 19s, under 17s or whatever it was at the time. Um, but yeah, who, who were those names? Were you even aware of them because it was just mainly you in, in senior competitions? I wasn't aware of a lot. I, aware, I was aware of guys that were playing in the league above. So at that point, Stephen Hansel was uh, playing at Birmingham as a young player, who's obviously um, you know far far done outdone me in what he did. Um, but you know what a tremendous player he was. So you know Stephen Hansel and Adrian Anderson were were both at uh, Birmingham. I guess 
Andrew Sullivan was playing as a junior, so I kind of watched watched the guys that were above me uh, playing. I, I, I guess they were guys. I guess they were guys my age playing uh, in senior basketball. But but yeah, those guys um, I obviously remember uh, very fondly and watched, thinking how, how good they were at the time. And so then turning pro, like the opportunity uh, with Sheffield, how, how did that come about? Um, yeah, and like what led to that actually happening? You know, someone working through the leagues is, is kind of like, it's, it's, I feel like it's a little bit more more rarer for, you know, obviously we've seen it in the last couple of years actually with a couple of guys getting call-ups from Division 1. But generally it's like you kind of, uh, we see you, you're starting that league and you stay in that league um, and that's it and it's hard to kind of get the movement up as opposed to downwards is a lot easier, you know? Yeah, yeah, and, and I guess it's coaches taking a gamble on some guys really and saying, you know, how good are they going to be? I mean, we've got coaches that, value that in the English game uh, and coaches that don't so so um, it came about Sam by um, Jimmy Brandon who was at Calderdale and just remembered me as a kid and then saw well he's playing at Doncaster and they've just won Division 1 and he's starting he's only 18 years old so he must be doing, he must have improved so much over that short space of time so he, he got on the phone and asked me you know would I play and and I knew Sheffield then, you know, they had good sponsorship. The league was a, you know, quite a, a profitable league. And I originally said, well, no, I'm going to stay in Division One because the offer wasn't what I wanted. Um, but then, fortunately, four games into the season, he came back to me and said, you know, you know, we, we're willing to to take on what you said and 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 get me involved and and playing. And I was playing still for Curtis at the time, so being the coach that Curtis was, he says, you can't stay with me. You have to go now. You've got to go. Uh, and he didn't want to hold me back in any way. He wanted to give me that opportunity. And he said, it's something you can't you can't turn down. Uh, obviously, I was overjoyed to to be playing in the BBL at, I think it was 19, then 19 years old. Um, and yeah, and just moved, moved on from there, really. Did you have a kind of welcome to the pros moment where you were like, you know, put on your back or whatever it might be. I think, I think one of the moments um, in my first couple of years, so there were many times where, you know, guys were, were just better than me at, at that point. And, and I was thinking, you know, this is going to be really tough to, to play. I would say I never backed down from anyone. I never really feared or, or idolized anyone to that point. I had that, I don't care attitude, but one of the be- one of the moments was in my second year. I got the call up to play on the national team, and I, I we were at Crystal Palace, and I walked in, and uh, I was quite wary of meeting Steve Bucknell because although I won't say I played against him because I'd not got much court time for Sheffield the year before, but the year after I did, I went against him quite a lot. But I remember walking into Crystal Palace and uh, kind of introducing myself. As if to say, I'm Jason, like like he didn't know me. And he immediately said, listen, you know, I know you are. You know, I, we know you are. We expect you to do this, this and this. And uh, and that was it. As if to say, you, you, you're now a pro, you know. Uh, and I, and I, I was so kind of worried about meeting this guy because, you know, he's, he's played for the Lakers. And not only as a basketball player, as a formidable kind of competitor, 
you know so so yeah that was one moment that I thought yeah I'm actually involved I'm actually in this now so it would just be interesting like as a as a 19 year old uh, playing in a BBL and it's up to you how much you want to share but how much money could you earn were you actually like a full-time professional were you still living were you still living at home were you put up in housing like what was the situation just to it'd be interesting to kind of hear about it yeah, so my first year at Sheffield, I was I actually worked in Huddersfield. I'd left school. I worked at Foot Locker in Huddersfield. And it's amazing because people around the area, and come on, Sam, I used to have hair up there and not down there. So people still say to me, you used to work in Foot Locker. And I think, wow, that's, that's like, that's 27 years ago, you know, and people still say that. Um, so, yeah, I worked in Foot Locker and I, I drove to practice four nights a week uh, and got got a little bit of money for playing um, and all my travel uh, and that was my first year but my second year I actually signed a, a, a bigger contract so I worked for Adidas I lived I lived with the sponsors in Sheffield uh, me and Ian McKinney lived in the same house with them which was a huge house the Evans family which were great and we lived with with them guys and and I worked for Adidas coaching in the schools and I also was paid for playing basketball so that's when I started making uh, quite decent money uh, in my second year there did did it feel like like playing in the BBL at such a young age do you did it feel like a thing do you know what I mean like was it like kind of uh, I don't know what, what the best way of describing it is but you know like good for the ego in the sense of like a you know, like I'm a professional athlete, you know, I'm playing in front of lots of people every single week, like kind of, yeah, how did it feel? Yeah, definitely. I mean, you were, I, I had the opportunity, I had a scholarship offer to go to a CW post uh, in Long Island um, and Kurt, Curtis was in touch with the coach, Tom Galizzi at the time. And I, and I was asked, you know, do you want to go play out there at Division Two school? And it was something I considered. Part of me wasn't ready to move away from England but the main reason I didn't go is I saw a future. I saw a future in me playing in, in, in the BBL. I saw, you know, if I can get onto that next level um, and play, that there's a, there's a future for me in this game. And, and I'm glad I made that decision. Uh, but so many guys now, you know, it's the same decision they have to make, but the landscape in some respects has changed. So, so yeah, it was on TV. It was on TV every week. Uh, you know, I was... We were known, we you know, around town, people knew who we were, and yeah, there was a big buzz about playing the B in the BBL. I was proud, proud to be yeah. on the roster even at that point. I feel like that's one of the big things that's changed, and maybe it's changing again, back, back, going, reverting again, back now, um, where like, yeah, it did have that kind of aura, or it felt like it had that aura when I speak to people kind of from, from that era. Um, how many people were you playing in front of every single week? Well, the, fir the first year at Sheffield, we were at Ponds Forge, uh, and, yeah. and we would fill it. So I'm guessing over a thousand. I'm guessing people, yeah. um, or roughly around that mark. Um, and then the next season, where it really started to change, and you know, we were we were at Sheffield Arena. You know, the Giants were at were at Manchester Arena. So some games you would sell out. I remember playing in front of. I think it was around 14,000 at, at the MEN. Um, and there was a game in Birmingham we played where we broke the attendance record at the NIA uh, for Sheffield that we played uh, around that similar. Don't get me wrong, every week wasn't that. But I would say I would say Ma um, Manchester Arena, Manchester would probably have 
three to four thousand people in it every weekend. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, um, so. Interesting. The what would you attribute the the the, the change in your role? So rookie year uh, with Sheffield, you won the league, you won the cup, right? Um, but yeah. like like you said, minutes were hard to come by. It was what is your rookie year? You're you're 19 years old or whatever, and then. Next year you signed a how like a multi-year contract was it, and you then started playing a bigger role. Like what was no, the situation? I mean, I mean, it's funny when we talk about contracts, and so many people will say, you know, your professional career. Well, I I always, I always consider a profession having a tax code. <laughs> you know, are you getting paid and you having a tax code? So many yeah. guys. Well, I'm a professional basketball player, or I'm a professional athlete. Well, you're not really. You just you know you so. So, you know, my, my first year at Sheffield was when I got a tax code my next year. So I, every year I re-signed. I wasn't, I wasn't one of the top players that someone would say, listen, we're going to have you here for four years. Like Roger Huggins, we're going to have you here for three years. We're going to do this. Yeah. You know, so my next year is when, fortunately, we were, we were in the McDonald's Open and we were in Europe is when I did start to really play, uh, which was just good timing, I guess. But... Um, but what do you think? Why do you think your role changed so much? Was it because your game, like, is it because your game got so much better? Is it because opportunities opened up on the squad? Like, what was this? What what caused that switch? I'm not sure. I'm not sure my game changed. I just knew I had to be the best at what I did. I just knew I had to be able to shoot the ball better than anybody else, and I and I I wasn't allowed to miss. And there's a few ways you can look at that. A lot of younger players now, and in all sports, you know, and this is why I'm quite tough on my kids with this, that they will say, well, I, I, I got taken out because I missed a couple of shots um, and the other guy got to play and, he, and he, he missed loads of shots and he stayed out there still or, you know, that's the mentality and it's not fair. Well, you know, uh, life, I was trapped probably by Curtis that life isn't going to be fair. You know, it isn't going to be. And, and okay, you're talking about you missed those two shots. Well, that's on you. <laughs> Don't miss those two shots. So I was actually in a position playing for Jimmy Brandon where I knew I couldn't miss. So I kind of accepted that. Well, okay, I'm not going to miss. So I'm going to come in cold and I'm going to make sure I make every shot. And then you cannot leave me out of the game. You cannot still sit me there knowing because you're going to look silly. Um, and and I guess you know it's it's embracing that that um, that that you know challenge ahead of you. In the first couple of years in that second season, I was shooting about seventy five percent from three. The first mm-hmm. couple of months, the first couple of months, and then guys started to know. Well, this guy don't leave him, and then you've got guys who are in your airspace a lot more. And I I wasn't good at going off a dribble. So, so you know, then then you, your percentage starts to come down. Yeah. You know, for the first couple of months of the season, yeah, I was shooting. I hardly missed, to be honest. You led the league in three point shooting. That was the season you led the league in three point shooting, right? Yeah, it the was. Second, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What did you? Would you know what your season average was? What you finished with? I think it was it was forty nine or fifty. I'm holding on to the fifty, Sam. It's a significant <laughs> milestone. I, I think it was around that forty nine or fifty. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Decent. You mentioned there yeah, the McDonald's are open. Um, when I first found out about this a few years ago, it blew my mind. It, like, can you explain what the McDonald's open was, uh, why it happened, how how it came about, and obviously what it was like as a player to to play in it? Yeah. So probably the greatest tournament I'll 
many guys will ever play in, but um, the McDonald's Open every season happened as a pre-season tournament and it happened with the champions of various countries. So the standout team from the NBA, the NBA champions always played in the following year's pre-season tournament. Uh, the, the team from Israel, uh, so is, there was Americans, Israel, Italy, Spain and Australia. So the Perth Wildcats played in it from Australia. Uh, then they had Butler Bologna, who had Orlando Wooldridge that year. Then there was uh, Real Madrid, played Maccabi Tel Aviv, who had Tom Chambers playing. And then the Houston Rockets, who obviously won with Akeem in that year. So, I mean, the buzz was that it was great. But fortunately, that year, it was in London. So the, the host team that won the league always got a pass into the pre-season tournament. And it was Sheffield. So we'd won the league and we were playing in the McDonald's Open for that pre-season. And fortunately, I had, an, I had a really good summer that year. And I was able to get quite a bit of court time playing in that tournament. And, and we were in Europe that year too. So so that was, I mean, just, just mind-blowing. I mean, you can't find this on the internet now and I'm really gutted. But I, I, sit, I sit in between Robert Ory and Tony Kukoc in three pointers made in the McDonald's Open, and I, I, I got a print out of it years ago, and then I, I was looking for it, and there's very, very limited stuff you can find on the McDonald's Open because it's not a tournament anymore. Um, but yeah, it was just when you look back, it was just it was just unreal. We were in that tournament. It was only played in London that one year, right? Yes. Yeah, it was a. Was it, it was at Wembley. Uh, it was at Docklands, so it was where the Leopards played. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And how, how many games? Would you play all the teams or was it in pools? Like, So, uh, this, and this is the, the annoying thing. So when we played Madrid in the European competition, we only lost to Madrid by three in Madrid. You know, we ran them really close. We were up 17 at half time, you know. We, it, but when we played in the McDonald's Open, we, uh, we lost them by, I think it was like 18 points. So they beat us quite convincingly. And then we played Maccabi and we lost his first two games. So we didn't get to go against the Rockets and we didn't get to go against Perth because they were through to the next round. So so we matched up against Maccabi and Real Madrid, who were, who were great teams, you know. Uh, but they beat us. Um, I think Madrid beat us by quite a lot and Maccabi maybe 10 or something, but... But you know, we didn't disgrace ourselves. But but we, you know, we we weren't the we weren't the best team in that competition by far. Was there a big buzz around the McDonald's Open, like in terms of drawing in the fans and being on TV and like just in the UK? Kind of what was the reception of it? Yeah, it was great because Channel Four did a lot of work. Uh, then, if you can remember, uh, Scoop Jackson and um, and Dave DNLY, whatever he was called, you know, those guys. So they were always around us when we were down there. We, you know, we stayed part lane in London uh, and the cameras were always there. Um, the Hippodrome, I don't know if the Hippodrome is still a thing down there, but that was a that was a big event the night before where all the teams were and we got to kind of socialise with each other and, and the cameras were there and there was a big buzz about it. I think there's still, still a little bit of footage. I, I think I've put some on YouTube. Um, around when the McDonald's Open was was on, but Channel Four covered it immensely at that point. Yeah. Wow. And just briefly, you you mentioned so you, you played Real Madrid in Madrid, and you were up seventeen and a half, and you ended up losing by three. Yeah. So we played them in the European Cup, and 
anyone who's played in Europe for any point will understand. And this is where, like, guys that have played abroad, are, you know, in England we 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 back our teams, but in Europe they win no matter what. And 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 you know, we're we're up seventeen at half in Madrid. So we walk into the locker room and we like, guys, this this is. This is it, you know. We're going to beat these guys, and they were the European champions at that point. So we. What year was this? This was my second season. So second season. I'm thinking ninety five, ninety six. Ninety five, ninety six. Yeah, yeah. So and we're thinking, you know, we're going to get Madrid here. This has not been done before. We didn't get one foul called in the whole second half, you know. So that the press were after them and all sorts, and we didn't. I remember Roger Huggins going to the bucket and just getting absolutely hammered on every play. No foul, play on, you know. Um, and we didn't get one foul the whole second half and we lost by three. And uh, it was one of my kind of best moments, but worst moments. I think I was in true style at that point in my career. I was three for three, nine points played, 11 minutes, you know, um, you know and just... Just, but to be out there on that court against those guys and and get that close was it was a thrill to be honest, Sam. But yeah, no foul in the whole second half. I can't, I can't get that. Unbelievable. Is, is there footage of that game anywhere? Pardon? Is there footage of that game anywhere? I don't know. I'd love to see it. I mean, I've got yeah. there is footage of us playing various um, European teams scattered about, but yeah, I don't think there is. But yeah. It was a nearly. So um, you ended up uh, making your England uh, debut uh, age twenty one ninety six, right? Um, yeah. What What was that like? Uh, sort of getting that call up, uh, and again, it, you've already spoken about your kind of meeting of, of Steve Bucknell. I'm assuming that was at that camp. Um, but like, who, who were the other guys on the team, and kind of what was that experience like? First getting involved with with the national team. So, um, once again, timing is everything. And, and Laszlo Nemeth, who is a great coach and still a great friend to this day. Um, you know, I work all the Euro camps with him in the summers and, and what, what a great person he is. But he took the England coaching job. And and at that point, it was Cadel And God bless Cadel you know, um, what you know amazing coach he was. But Laszlo Nemeth took over and he, and he, he really valued the outside shot. Um, so guys that would have probably been picked before me were were now well we need we need guys that can space the floor and shoot. So within the English game, myself and Ian McKinney at that point were were very good shooters, and and it just the call came out of the blue. You know you've been picked for the for the national team, and I thought, wow, you know, you know what, just wow, it shocked me. Um, and turning up, I remember driving down with Roger Huggins in the car and Ian, and we turning up. I'm thinking, I'm I'm going to play for England. I mean, this is ridiculous. I didn't know whether I'd get picked into the team, um, and and we going down to Crystal Palace against, and they're playing Hungary, and hopefully I'll I'll get to put on a jersey. Let's see. And you know, the I remember the national anthem being played, and I was so proud to be playing for my country. Um, Scants was out out at the point with an injury, so I got to wear my uh, beloved number eight for once, uh, which he took back straight away when he was fit. So, so yeah, um, I, re- I remember just suiting up and, and got to play quite a bit in that game. So you know, it was it was great. It was just you know, unbelievable experience. 
you ended up picking up 24, 24 caps uh, over your time representing the national team. Like, what are the standout memories uh, for you, both, I guess, in games against competition, but also, you know, maybe training camp, maybe, you know, traveling, hotels, whatever it might be. Like, when you look back on those times, um, yeah, what, what are the things that come to mind that you look back on, look back on fondly? Yeah, so the game itself, you look back on the experience of playing uh, with great players and playing against great players is is good and you, you're playing for your national team. But aside from that, um, you know, the guys on the team and the trips, I mean, we were fortunate enough to play in Saudi Arabia, which many people won't go to or won't be able to go to now or won't have the experience of going to. Fortunate enough to do that. We played in Yugoslavia before, it, well, when it was Yugoslavia. Um and just the just the general, I always try to get out and see countries. So when we when we went, I wasn't a guy to stay in my hotel. I I wanted to get out and experience life and and just the you know the the life experiences it brought. The teammates that I played with, I'm still really you know in touch with Ronnie Baker, who's a good friend, who's you know my what is my. Uh, Child's god godfather, you know. So so you build up, you you know, Mike Bernardo. I speak to every week, and you build up just a really strong network of people, don't you? Um, and and just all those experiences with guys like Martin Godfried that was on the team at some point, and Delmi Herriman, who were just, you know, Steve Bucknell, who was a good guy, John Amici, who was an absolutely phenomenal player and, and a good friend too. And it's just, you know, all those experiences just make it sound, don't they, in professional sport. When you look at um, the likes of uh, Amici and Bucknell, guys that obviously played in the NBA, was it clear to you their level um, and their ability was higher than everyone else's? Like, do you think that, um, yeah, like playing with them, playing against them, like, yeah, was 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 their talent uh, abundantly obvious? At times, yes, but then again, you had players that were. I, I would probably say on the national team, I was maybe eighth, eighth, ninth off the bench. You know, coming in, playing maybe fifteen, ten, fifteen minutes a game. Uh, but these guys were the the cornerstone of the team, like Amici and Bucknell were the two guys. But but then you had guys who weren't far behind, so like Roger Huggins. Um, you know, was right there. I'm sure there was other guys. Ronnie Baker, who was, you know, phenomenal point guard. Uh, you know, leading caps, Scants, Peter Scantlebury. You, you know, so the those were guys that weren't. It wasn't a massive gap when you got to that level, but mm-hmm. there were times where Steve Bucknell and John Amici would just kind of just take ownership of the games and just say, right, we're going to try go out and do and score. But they were not only they were not only great players. They they were great teammates, Sam. You know, for for a person like me, they never, they they always, you know, mentored me and they always empowered me to do better. I, I felt like I could really achieve playing with them, and they they were great teammates too, um, and and exceptional players. It goes without saying for what they they did, right? Were there any standout victories uh, in your time with the program? Um. Yeah, we we were a good team. We played well in the Euros. Um, the the one that the one that got away, and there were standout victories. But the one that got away was Russia in Guildford. We played Russia, who at that time were the were the were the European champions, and they were they were so good. 
And this is what I mean by I go back to Madrid and about not getting a whole call in the second half. So we're playing Russia and we're down three with eight seconds left. And, and I'm in the game and I'm thinking the ball's going to come to me and I'm going to shoot a three and we're going to go to overtime against Russia. So, you know, this is going to be unbelievable. And, and I remember Delmi swinging the ball and I, I think I skipped it to Amici and he shot this three. And Sorry, we were down two and he, and he shot this three and I'm thinking that's going in. And he missed it and Delmi Herriman tipped it in right on the buzzer. We're in England, no problems. We're going to overtime with Russia. The whole of the t- the table who were English stood up, no basket. <laughs> so so we end up losing, and we could have gone to overtime against the European champions. So yeah, there were wins and there were losses, and 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 you know Luxembourg, we played there, and we we gave them a real good hiding, and I managed to make I don't know eight or nine three pointers that game. That was good, uh, but. But the um, that game stuck in my mind because we 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 should have been going to overtime against these guys, right? You think you you think you would get a favour off an all English table, but no, that's a typical typical British basketball. Isn't hey, it? I'm not sure if they're all English, but you're in England. You know that basket's good. That that should have been good, and Delmere opens it should have counted. But hey, yeah, yeah, that's a good memory. Unbelievable. So jumping back to the the BBL. Um, what ended up leading to your departure from from Sheffield? So um, yeah, it was it was a sad one, really. I was there for three years. Uh, it was at the time where they changed with the Bosman ruling, and five Americans was was allowed. Um, and that my final season at Sheffield, um, I, I still played. I still played quite well, but uh, the following summer. I was t- well. I, I was told, you know, that you, we're going to sign you. We, you know, just hold on, just hang on, uh, and so I hung on, and so I waited, you know, for contracts to be sorted out and what what you do, and fully believe that, you know, I would have been taken care of. I've been there for three years, so so you know, I I, I will be playing at Sheffield again. You know, I, I will be ready to go. The coach was going to be Chris Finch the following season, so you know, I, it was a kind of fresh start from Jimmy Brandon, who was. You know, I, who I really enjoyed playing for, but you know, this was Chris Finch coming in as from a player to being a coach, and we all know how good he's become, right? Um, so, so I was looking forward to that following season, and then I got a call in the summer to come into the office, and and I was told that they'd gone in a different direction, that I wasn't, my contract wasn't going to be renewed, uh, I was going to be released, and they was going to pick up an American shooting guard. Now. They made the right decision because it was Terrell Myers. So obviously we know how good Terrell Myers was, uh, but unfortunately that left me in a position where where I was surplus to requirements. And also I didn't have a contract. And because the following season I'd, I'd done so well, I, w- I would have been able to get a better contract. But I guess that's the nature of sport and and how it works, right? So I ended up going to play for Chester that following season. So that was why uh, I left Sheffield. Never really wanted to leave, really loved playing there, but just through circumstances and then wanted to go in a different direction, I uh, found myself uh, needing a, another club. So I joined Chester Jets at that point. Was, was it a case of like, okay, you know, you, you had me looking for a new contract because you thought you were going to get a contract from Sheffield. All of a sudden, it's late in the off-season. You're like, 
damn it, like I've got to find got to find a job. Like, uh, you know, was it a case of like calling around other clubs and seeing whether there were opportunities? Did people sort of hear on the grapevine that you weren't getting renewed, and then they came to you? Like, did you even have options? Like, what was the situation? Yeah, so I would have definitely had options earlier on in the season. You know, Thames Valley and London Towers were, you know, Cadel was interested in, in having me go there and we spoke a lot on the phone and, you know, Thames Valley, Paul James at that point, you know, was and Michael Hales, who, who was coaching at that point, were, were interested. But then again, they, you know, they're signing their guys early. So, you know, Martin Godfrey, who was a good player, was at the time, he signed for Thames Valley. And then I think Tamir Berkovic, who uh, who played at London Towers, he was a shooter. He signed then, and and I wasn't available because because I was going back to Sheffield, you know. So it came as a bit of a shock to to kind of think, well, no, I, I'm not going back. Uh, so then I managed to get an, an agent. Dan Davis was my agent. And I thought I better get someone looking out for me here. So he then took on that role, and he said, you know, listen, you know the Towers would have def would have been interested. Um, so would Thames Valley, but at this point, you know, we're struggling. Guys have guys have been signed, and I wasn't I wasn't like a marquee guy, you know. I wasn't one of these guys. I, I was I was a role player that could help your team, but I wasn't someone who was going to make or break your team. So I ended up thinking I need to go somewhere where I know I'm going to play, uh, and I know there's an opportunity. So I was fortunate enough to to go to Chester, which I was ecstatic about at that time because I knew they only played five or six guys every year, you know, so, and I was going to be one of those guys. So I, I, was, I was excited about that opportunity in, in the end of it all, really. But why did it only end up being half a season with Chester? So, yeah, it ended up being limited money, if I'm being honest. It wasn't a big budget. I was one of the guys getting paid and, and we did discuss at the beginning of the year that, is this okay? Is it going to work? You know, we moved. We moved house. Uh, my wife moved uh, a job across to Manchester, and we live kind of in between Manchester and Chester because uh, I'm Huddersfield based. So, so we moved over there and, and uh, rented a property. I was quite young and money naive at that point, I would say. So, you know, it just got to a point where the, you know this is not working. I'm going to have to look at something else. Um, and, and we discussed that earlier on at Chester, you know, is this going to be okay for me? But I saw the opportunity to play. I saw, you know, it being a good opportunity and it just, it just didn't, it, it just couldn't go on as it was going on. You know, this was, you know, from the professional side of things, it just couldn't work. So, you know, then Manchester came in and, and you know, wanted to take me on. And it was either I was going to stop playing for Chester and I was going to go home. I was going to get a job or I was going to find another team. It was my only two options. But it's a shame because I absolutely love my time at Chester Jets. I loved the the arena. I loved the fans. I loved playing for, for Mike Burton and Robbie Piers at the time. I played 35 minutes a game. You know, what's not to like? Um, so, yeah, it was, a, it was a great experience, to be honest. What was it like then making the transition to match the Giants? Different world. Um mm. You know, totally different ball game. True professional organisation. You know, owned by the Cup Company. A um, lot of money involved in that. Uh, bigger contract um, and just just a great experience. Practice practice every day. You know, uh, physio, um, health club. You know, other benefits that came with it. Um, and yeah, it was 
it was good and I, I kind of brought that kind of raw passion when I came to Manchester. I was I was six man uh, during that first season playing with Robert Churchwell and uh, Ronnie Baker, Michael New, um, and and you know thoroughly thoroughly enjoyed it. But because I think a lot of guys that Americans that come over have been involved with that level of professionalism all their life, so they come over and, and kind of see these clubs as well. That's just how it should be. Whereas I really, I knew what time it was when I arrived in Manchester. I was like, this is great. You know, I'm going to appreciate this and I'm going to work my ass off still. Uh, so kind of grabbed it with both hands. Um, so, yeah, the, the the transition in terms of playing basketball, I enjoyed both. But um, in terms of being a professional organisation, yes, uh, Manchester was by far the, the number one at that point, wasn't they? Yeah, I was going to say, like, comparing that to the rest of the league and how the rest of the league was operating, was Manchester literally on a completely different level? Um, I wouldn't say on a different level. I would say they were they were the standout team, but but you had you had Newcastle United then. So you had Sir John Hall involved in Newcastle United. Sheffield, you had Mushroom Records that were involved with them and and they were playing at the arena. You had London Towers that were massive playing at Wembley. You had London Leopards that were at the Docklands. Birmingham was at the NIA. That were Peugeot were involved with them. They, they were they were still big teams within that league. But Manchester just had the arena NBA kind of feel to it. So it had the uh, you know the scoreboard. I remember teams used to walk in and play against us and just watch the pre-game show. You know the cheerleaders were there and. And it was just, you know, the commentary. And it was there was a buzz about being in that arena full stop. So so yeah, I think that but I still say there were many teams in that league that were great professional organisations too. I haven't been close to the, the Manchester Giants this season. Um and obviously you mentioned, you know, Jamie Edwards uh involved now. Do you feel like, you know, Manchester Giants basketball could get back to that sort of level of uh, hype professionalism, you know, whatever you want to call it, or do you think that's still going to take, you know, years of investment? Um, I hope so. I, I hope. I mean, come on, Sam. We all want it to. We we we're all. I mean, your passions, you know, exceeded most involved with basketball. You know, you you come across. You saw. You know, there's no agenda for you. You just want Eng English basketball to be really good. And, and we all do. We all want that to happen. So I'm not sure how long it will take, but it's definitely, to me, this season, this last season has been better from a number of teams. You know, it was a shame that London didn't get to play in Europe. Uh, that was a shame, you know. I would have loved to have seen that. But, um but yeah, I'm I'm not sure how long that'll take. Uh, getting back in the arena, I know, is a goal of a lot of owners. I'm quite sure Jamie is 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 wanting that club to to go on and do better things, um, which is good. I must mention, you know, they really started being a lot more competitive. I know Lloyd Gardner did a fantastic job and a, a true gentleman to speak to, by the way, you know, and and it seems to be on the up. But even even like your your arenas you've got, so Bellevue. Leicester's Arena, Newcastle's Arena, they're really good arenas and they're still going to hold a lot of people in those places. So, you know, professionally, it looks a lot better than it did in previous years, I would say. Yeah, 100%. So when you, you left Manchester, you went to Teesside. Um, 
which is obviously Division One, but you had you had massive success there. Was it? Uh, did you feel like it was? Did you feel like it was a step down? Like, did you feel disappointed going from the BBL to Division One? Like, did you feel like you, you wanted to have more years in the BBL before going before going to Division One? Or actually, you know, for where you were at your life, where you were in your life, and obviously the opportunity at Teesside um, at that time, uh, it was it was yeah, it was a good situation. Yeah, the situation in Teesside was was a great situation. I mean, they were run by a project called Reach for Success with the late amazing guy Tony Hansen you know that ran that um, and they were funded very well so you know in it I still I still got a, a, it was still professional at that point but mm. the reason I, I chose to do that is um, you know life it was a great decision because my son was born you know Isley who you know was played in the hoops fixed games so he was born at that point so I had to make a decision it was never going to be professional enough for me to make a, a lot of money playing you know guys that I played with it was it was an option for them to make a lot of money they were sought out by so many teams I wasn't at that level so I was I didn't want to be one of those guys that was 35 years old and washed up with no money so I kind of made the decision to go to university and start getting a degree and start getting involved in teaching which I do now um, and I made that decision, and I couldn't do that by playing in a BBL. I could, I, there was not enough time. Mm-hmm. I understood. I understood for me to be good, I had to put in more time than everyone else. And and if I didn't do that, I wouldn't. So yes, okay, I made the step down to T side, but who knew it? Those next four years would be the some of my fondest memories playing in in that in that division one team and 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 obviously being one of the main being one of the main guys in that team uh, yeah looking at looking at uh, the, the 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 titles am i right in thinking you did a treble three years out of four so 2001 2003 2004 you won division one national trophy and the playoffs right yeah so and uh, not one to gloat sam you know but uh but during those four years we were playing, whoever else was worthing, whoever, you were playing for second. You were playing for second because you're right. Those three, the three out of the four years, we swept. You know, you, you wasn't getting a trophy. But the one of the years we only won the cup and then the playoffs and the league were won by, I think, Plymouth won those, won the playoffs and the league. So, so yeah, um, and still some of my fondest teammates come from that team who I'm still in touch with. Um, and you know we were we were able to to really just dominate, and we beat Leicester one year in the cup. So they ended up winning their BBL playoffs, but we knocked them out of the cup. Oh really? Yeah. Um, so we were we were probably a team that was good enough to play in the BBL. If I'm being honest, who else was on that roster with you? So we had uh, Ralph Bucci was the main guy, and it was uh, okay. when I first when I first got there, I, I had a bit of a well, I'm a BBL England player, you know, I'm going to run this team as as you kind of think, and uh, and it was Ralph Bucci was there, and EJ Harrison who was a final four when they were UConn was there, so they were us three were kind of vying for who's going to be the main guy. It quickly became apparent that Ralph was the main guy, you know, and. And EJ at times would take over games, and I would just get as many points as I could, you know. So it was Ralph. Ralph kind of led that team, and he was an exceptional player, you know, yeah. and an exceptional friend as well. 
But yeah, it was really, really fun playing there, Sam. Really good fun. So kind of after your period there, that was when kind of, uh, I guess, your teaching career started taking precedence um, and then you you played, you continued to play National League. Actually, looking down the, the list of, of teams that you play for and kind of um, what you've done since, like one of the things I, well, I love about the fact that you just, you didn't just hang them up, you know, like so many do. It's like, uh, you know, rather than just, rather than saying, um, I'm going to just, fo- you know, I need to just focus on, on this career now. So I'm going to carry on playing because I love it again. Well, I assume because I love it again and you loved it. Like, and, and still to this day, you're still playing, right? Like, even if you're not playing National League, you're, st- you're still playing a lot of basketball. Like, you know, w- what do you think has kept you playing? Um, you know, when so many of your peers stopped a long time ago uh, and, and, you know, don't really pick up a ball at all anymore. Like, w- why do you think you're still doing it? You know, Sam, I, I really, really love basketball. I, I, I just... You will hear pe- people say, you know, I'm a baller, I love this game. And and then they'll say, well, I'm going to take a break for a couple of months. I, I couldn't do that. I really, really love it. And it, and it was never it was never about the, the prestige and the arena. It was about the two hoops when you walk in a gym and being able to play. And I still, I still, okay, I'm 46 years old and, you know, things, things don't move like the, you don't move like you used to. Uh, let's not let's not get that twisted. But I still love the game. I still love seeing a basketball hoop in a park, and and I, and I I kind of feel so lucky that I do because I know so many guys that have kind of not fallen out with people, but just just not love the game anymore. So when I walk in a gym, I'm excited. I'm looking, thinking that net looks nice, or you know things that you do as a kid. I still have that. You know, which is, and I'm fortunate enough to do that. Of course, one of the other things I did, want, I'm aware of time, but one of the things I, I wanted to talk about um, before before wrapping up was uh, being one of the rare uh, people, duos, to have played with their son on the same team. Um, can you talk about that as an experience, uh, you know, playing at Bradford with, with Isley uh, as he was coming through and, um, I guess what that meant to you and how, how it was like in terms of managing it, like, you know, playing with your teammates is one thing, playing with your son is a completely different ball game, I assume. Yeah, and 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 it's probably the greatest years of my playing career. So I would say it, those, I played at Bradford for three or four years and how I got into that was I was playing in Division 3 and I was playing at Huddersfield and then Leeds and, and I was just enjoying the game, still at a decent level and I was enjoying playing. Uh, and teaching, but what I was, he was at Bradford and he was playing the juniors. And Chris Meller, who's another good coach I played for, was sitting him on the bench at games. So as a dad, I'm going to that game because he might get he might get three or four minutes at the end if they either losing by a lot or winning by a lot. So I'm going to that game thinking, you know, oh, he's got a chance of playing. And then the next day, I'm going and playing my game, and I'm thinking, I could still play. So why don't I just play on this team? Because I'm here anyway. So why don't I just play? So he started getting better and he started playing and it came at a time where I was still playing 30 minutes plus into my 40s and he was playing 20 minutes. You know, it may be because of injuries or but whatever, he was playing 20 minutes. So when you play, when I played with my son, we were teammates. We were proper teammates. We would hold each other accountable we would be in the locker room, you know, having not father-son stuff, 
teammate stuff. And and the best thing was that Chris Meller always treated us just like teammates. We weren't father and son. But to play with him and, and just, it was just, I can't, I can't tell you how good that feels. And I can't tell you how important it was for both of us, I would say. And, and he's my, he's obviously my best teammate I've ever had. Um, so yeah, it was great, Sam. Do you, do you know of any other uh, father-son duos that have played together in the National Leagues at all? Well, or the BBL, but I'd assume it's more likely in the National Leagues than it would be the BBL. I don't... I mean... Do you? I mean... Not well. No, nothing comes to mind. But you would know better than me, seeing as you've been, you've kind of been, you've seen more of it than I have. Yeah. Um, but it'd be interesting if anyone's listening, if if they know of anyone to, to to let me know. But it could well be the only the only father and son. Joe, it would be, be amazing if LeBron does it. You know, he he's oh, talking about he doesn't want to retire until until uh, until he gets a, a season with yeah. with Bonnie, which would just be unreal. I'm slightly a, a little bit better level than we were. <laughs> no, I mean, how cool would that be? You know, that yeah, awesome Next level. You could see him doing it by the physical shape he keeps himself in, right? You know, oh, 100, yeah, hundred percent. Like you, the level he's playing at now, you think he's definitely got a few more years. And uh, Bronny's what 60-17 now. So he's got like another couple of years. I think he yeah. becomes draft eligible in two years. I think it is something like that. So and LeBron could walk into the office and say, "Listen, I'll play, but this is a two a two person deal." Yeah, <laughs> yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, he's got the, he's got all the leverage. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, incredible. But before we, yeah, before we wrap up, let's just do some uh, sort of quicker fire questions, which I always, I always like to finish with. Um, can I just start, mention, um, Sam? Yes, go on. I interrupt you, but can I just mention one of the the major successes around uh, me me playing and and still enjoying playing is my family. You know, my wife Gail has always supported me, um, and my daughter Elias is now into a sport, so. Me, me being involved in sport through Isley and Elias now and, and you know, supporting my wife, Gail, is just, has been amazing. And I know I couldn't do this interview without saying that because it, it has been the constant throughout whatever I've done. Um, so, yeah, sorry to interrupt. Yeah. No, no, that's perfectly fine. I think um, I always say to people, you know, life, I feel I can I can do a lot of the things that I do because I don't have a family in, in that way. Uh, and and w- when you are in that situation, it changes things drastically. Um, and having uh, that support, the people that are actually willing to, to back it and, and kind of make it work is a completely different scenario than if you're in a situation where it's yeah. like, oh, you're going to basketball again. Oh, you're traveling around the country. You're not with us on the weekends. Like, yeah. um, and if, yeah, like it, it makes it all the So, yeah, I totally understand. I think it's, yeah, it's a nice thing to, to do. So totally yeah. appreciate it. So, uh, quick, quick fire questions. Um, starting with, um, you're in a different. Normally, I ask the best British junior player that you've ever seen. Um, I'll be, I'll ask the question anyway. But obviously, because you're in senior competitions, I don't know whether it's a kind of different situation. But, but if, yeah, like, you know, ir- irrespective of what they did at senior level, when you think about before they got to the age of 18, are there any particular standouts that you saw play with, played against um, that you, yeah, obviously British that you thought were were legit. Oh, but and I can still comment on now, right? So as yeah. long as the juniors, yeah. I, I would a hundred percent pay to see Cameron Ildreth play. You know, I mean, there there may have been better guys down the pass, but you know that we all want him to do well. You know, we really do, and and I know I know his father, uh, and I know he just seems a humble guy who is hungry, who wants to get better, and. Uh, you know, I mean, how good is he? He's he's ridiculous. So, 
you know, let's hope he keeps his feet on the ground. Let's hope he uh, he achieves a lot of success, and we can we can shout about that. But yeah, I would say Cameron Ildreth has been the most exciting junior for me to to watch. Who's the best British player that you played with against? Ooh, the best British players. Well, yeah, that's it's not easy because I've played with quite a lot of good British players. But you know, you you could throw. In terms of success, you could throw Ronnie Baker into the mix. Uh, you know, um, Scants was great. Delmi, Mike Bernard. Uh, but the two standout guys are Bucknell and Amici for what they've done. Um, if I had to pick one, you're putting me on the spot here, Sam, which is, I guess that's your job. But Amici probably went higher in the NBA um, in terms of playing out what he did in Orlando and things like that. Uh, but both... You know, Amici, a great friend, a great player, um, and Bucknell, just a, a great teammate and a great player as well. So those two were the, would be the two English guys that the best I played with. What's the best individual performance that you've ever witnessed? Oh, probably Voicey Winters, who I played with at Sheffield. So voice, are you talking about on court with? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, well, yeah, yeah. I guess so. Yeah. So, Voicey Winters, who, who could find the glass from any point at, at Newcastle, we played Newcastle away, and he'd not been playing so great. And he came to me before the game, and he said, "Jay, you know when you spot up on the weak side, and I skip it to you, and you open, and you you space the floor a little bit. That's not going to work tonight. I'm not going to pass. So I'm not. You just run back." Because I'm not passing. And for me, I wasn't of that level. So I just had to say, yeah, okay. And he said, I'm going to get 50. And I think he did. I think he just went out and got 50. And not just the performance, just the the way he did it. The confidence that he had in saying, yeah, I'm not giving you the ball all night. Forget that. I'm just going to shoot. Four guys on me, I'm still going to score. And so, I mean, there's been many great individual performances, but that one sticks in my mind for the for the sheer arrogance of how, of how he did it. What is your uh, favourite basketball memory? My favourite basketball memory, there, there's a few. Playing for England, uh, playing in the McDonald's Open, being selected for various um, times. But probably every time I stepped on court with my son, you know, is my favourite basketball memory. Um, also, you know, him going to University of Findlay, things like that, you know. Yeah, those those are my fondest memories, and I and the one thing that stands out is I've always been very precious of my number eight that I've wore on various teams, and I never said I would I would give that up uh, playing. And then when my son started playing at uh, Bradford with me, I remember before the game going over to him. I get quite emotional about this now and saying, "This is yours now." You know, this 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 is yours, and I'm going to wear a different number. I picked up 21, um, which I wore from then on, uh, just because it was the free shirt. Um, but yeah, that was that was one of my greatest memories. You know, of giving him that shirt, really, in terms of playing. So yeah, sentimental value, I guess. Uh, what do you think is in the future for you? I guess both on the court and off the court. How many years you got left playing? Um, and then yeah, what, what are you hoping to do in the next sort of three to five years? Well, I enjoy playing in the Masters and I enjoy playing uh, locally with friends, but basketball is is not the priority now. Um, I'm, I'm involved still in the coaching. I've really started getting into the netball coaching too. 
through elite netball so i do quite a lot of that uh, and also the commentary side of things i really enjoyed that this year uh, working at manchester and doing that and i would i would love to get involved i know like um dan routledge and kieran at, at sky and anthony Rowe do a fantastic job don't they i mean how good how good are those guys but it would be nice to be given a chance at, at doing something like that um and just just keep developing in those different areas being a teacher still uh, still enjoy enjoy doing that so i guess teaching a little bit of commentary and um and and a little bit of coaching will be where the focus is for me going forward sam perfect that's a, a perfect place to leave it jason uh, thank you so much uh, for taking the time uh, it's much appreciated i know we've been trying to do this for a, for a couple of weeks well more than a couple of weeks um but i'm glad we finally made it happen it was really uh, enjoyable yeah i really appreciate everything and just a big shout out to yourself i mean you're keeping so many people involved in a sport we love and and that shouldn't be taken for granted sam so a big respect to you and th- thanks for having me it's an honor Psst. hey podcast listener that you weren't expecting to hear from me again. Now that you've listened to the show, please take two seconds to take your podcast player out of your pocket and give us a rating and review on iTunes. It would be massively appreciated and goes a long way in helping us spread this content far and wide. Literally take your phone out of your pocket right now, uh, open up your podcast player, go to the Hoops Fix podcast, you'll see the option to leave a rating and review. Drop us a five star if you love it and uh, if you could take two seconds just to write a review as well, it would be massively, massively appreciated. Thank you and speak to you next week. You are listening to the Hoops Fix podcast, the official voice of the UK's largest basketball website. Visit hoopsfix.com for exclusive news, videos and more.